You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahraven.com. Welcome to Grow, Cook, Eat, Arrange, the podcast of me, Sarah Raven, and my work colleague and friend, Arthur Parkinson. Now, today, we are really happy to have Tom Brown, who is head gardener currently at West Dean, which is that wonderful garden in West Sussex rather than East Sussex, so in the next door county to me, with all those incredible Victorian glass houses and of course the Arts and Crafts Centre where you can learn everything from how to make a mosaic to, well, learn how to garden with Tom. They have a wonderful big poster as you come in saying make time to make which i think is a is that right tom that's right yeah yeah um, which i love a sculpture rather than sat nav all these sorts of um yeah little nice one-liners yeah exactly <laughs> so um i i first met tom actually not at westeen but at param which is another unbelievably beautiful garden again in west sussex over the border from here And I met him because he was doing lots of trials there, which I was writing about for The Telegraph. And we became friends through gardening, basically. But Tom, will you tell us about how you first got into gardening and why and where you've trained and just give us a bit of background? Uh, Yeah, sure. Well, as a sort of quite a young, young man, which was more years ago than I care to admit or remember, but um, all about nurturing things really and being outside so it stemmed from wanting to nurture either being pets or a piece of land plants and just got an incredible amount of satisfaction and joy from from that relationship with living things so that developed into a part-time job as a 16 year old at Wisley Plant Centre and my job before the use of, of technology was overly widespread was going around the shrub department and writing down how many shrubs had sold that weekend. So in, from in terms of an IDEN point of view, I yes. got to, to know my shrubs very quickly. And I was very fortunate because a friend of mine was counting the herbaceous. And I would quite often be by MN or P by tea break. And he hadn't really got through the C's or D's because you can imagine things like campanulas in a two-litre pot that are very similar. So that was great. And it was a lovely team. And I think with young people in horticulture and something that I try to do, whichever garden I work out, whichever team I, I head up, is try and make it a really nurturing, fun environment, particularly for people that are coming into horticulture, because I think that gives people such a boost and a positive attitude towards a horticultural career, rather than treating them as as aliens. You know, really giving them a good a good um, welcoming start. So, so the guys, the trainees at Westine, sadly have probably put on about three stone with the amount of cake that we feed them <laughs> and and the way we look after them. But um, but no, it's it's really really important. So I had a really good start at Wisley. But I found in terms of garden retail that there was a repetition about it. So after the first week of March, you'd order lots of primroses. The following year, early March would come round and you'd do the same thing. So I took the leap over the hedge and started working at, at Wisley Garden, sort of at the age of 21, I think it was. And then worked in the floral department and looked after the, the bedding, the wild gardens, all the lakes with a team of people and then for the last few years of my time at Wisley I was there for 
over 10 years, the last few years were working on the trials field. And that was as heading up the trials down there on the site of the A3, which yes. when I moved to Parham, it was lovely to hear birds singing again. Um, but that was quite an experience because you had to really detach yourself from from the, the plants. You know, looking at a border, it's a very sort of deep relationship as you create something like that. But if you're growing lots of delphiniums or sweet peas or cabbages even, you're looking at them as a crop and you've got these 10 experts that come around on a regular basis to judge them. So they don't want things that are badly grown. Mm. So when I left uh, Wisley and then started becoming the head gardener at Parham, I felt I had quite a nice balance to my experience. So I looked at things aesthetically in terms of borders and, and containers um, and that sort of thing. But then also looking at things very detachedly and trying to get the best from them as well in terms of feeding, spraying, you know, not so much with the, the pesticides anymore, more things like SB Invigorator and that sort of thing. But um, but yeah, it was quite a nice rounded rounded place. But at Wisley, you were very channeled into a particular type of horticulture because it was, and still is such a big garden. So Parham gave him the opportunity to become a bit more of a master of all trades, really. So looking at borders, fruit, glasshouse management, uh, vegetables, trees. And yeah, so it had a lovely time there for, for another sort of 10 years. And then my, I say little boy, he's now 13, it moved from primary school to secondary school. So it seemed like a really good opportunity to, to reassess things. And also after 10 years, I felt I'd done everything that I could at Parham. And I knew Jim and Sarah very well that were the former head gardeners at West Dean. And everything kind of seemed to dovetail. So going from managing 10 acres at Parham, we've now sort of stupidly trying to keep on top of 100 acres here wow. so we've got a huge remit we've got 13 very large victorian glass houses yeah and, and um, 100 acres of grounds including arboretums but it does give me the opportunity to be really creative which is is giving me i think you know, i'm going to be gray very very quickly the way things are going at the moment with the weather and the and the pandemic and everything but um yeah. you know looking at some of the projects that we're looking at making a dry meadow and we're looking at a big winter stem landscape in the next sort of six months. It's not wow. postage stamp stuff. You can really go landscape, go immersive, which is really exciting. And yeah. as I say, I'm knackered, but I'm happy. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and you always live on site, don't you? You you did at Parham and you and you do at West Dean, so you're right there. Yeah, you're on sort of a piece of elastic, really. Yeah. And good and bad. Um, someone described it as a golden cage. It's a nice place to be, but you, it's very difficult to mentally mentally switch off from mm. it. But it's it's just a, a way of life, really. And last night, for example, it was warm till quite late. So popping over at eight o'clock in the evening just to shut the greenhouses down because thinking about shutting them down at, say, four or five, yes, it was proper scorchio in there. So they, they wouldn't have thanked me for it at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so how do you get away from the responsibilities because I find certainly because I live on site too in the garden at Perthshire how do you find you can sort of turn off and have a break I think it's it's having a good team so we have a, a rotor where we do weekend shifts and when I know one of my team's looking after the gardens over the weekend I know that everything is is totally covered obviously on the phone if they need anything but we're in a I'm a very sort of safe hands with my team and I think that when we try to switch off I think physically going somewhere yeah is very handy so sort of the last few weekends or evenings have been hitting the beach walking the dogs on the beach and you just every time you look out the window you're not seeing the tip of the the greenhouse or, or what have you so actually physically going somewhere yeah. is um is really positive yeah yeah do you find that too 
I do. I have to get away. Yeah, I do. Um, I mean, because obviously we're, as you say, we're incredibly lucky. I mean, I walk out normally in my nighty at quarter past five in the morning and have a couple of hours pottering around sort of assessing how things are and what's looking fantastic and what needs a bit of work or, but you can't call it work, but it is leadership, isn't it? And and that's what I need to get away from and have breaks from sometimes. So yeah, I definitely physically need to leave the place. Otherwise I can't stop my mind worrying about what, what should be done and what shouldn't be done. And, and I've actually... I've started going to London a bit, in fact, doing reverse commuting in a way because my grown-up children are all there. And I've found a new intense pleasure in picking from here and really, you know, kind of armfuls. And so like I'm going up this evening and I'm going to take an armful of peonies, which I wouldn't do somehow if I was staying here. I would feel, why would I do that somehow? But because I'm going somewhere else and I want to take a bit of here with me, it doesn't feel too extravagant and crazy, either in time or of flowers, to take what's looking just loveliest in the garden at that moment. So that's given me a, a great new pleasure that I can sort of have a different relationship with Perchill in a way by getting away from it, just as you say. Anyway, enough on all that. Although, Arthur, any anything? Because, I mean, you live well, right I on top. Well, I pick flowers for you at Perchill. Yeah, you do. <laughs> you do. You do. And... Um, I'm surrounded by them now because we just had a photo shoot and I've got the most incredible lupins and bearded iris. But yeah, no, you do. But Tom, Tom, your wife is a florist, isn't she? She is, yeah. And she's, um, it's really exciting for her at the moment because she's starting up her own cut flower patch and she's oh. um, starting to supply local shops with hand-tied bunches. So yeah, she's, she's loving it. And, and across the road, we're sort of collaborating. It's probably the the most sort of, so we're trying not to get in too much trouble here, but we've obviously no. got our strengths and our times where we take the lead. But uh, but yeah, it's good because I can sort of talk to her about the kind of varieties that I think it's worth growing. Yeah. And she gets an incredible buzz. And I, I see her get a, an incredible buzz about using her floristry skills as well. So it's sort of a win-win. And also she gets to choose her hours. So she can be at home with the dogs. And if anything goes on with Ollie, she can respond to that. So it's so far so good. And I just, I, I know when to play play deputy, which is most of the time, to be honest, at home. But if I can do a bit of hoeing and and just sort of a bit of uh, watering occasionally, then we're, it's a win-win. Yeah, good. So I suppose what I wanted to talk to, or get you to talk mainly about, for us three to discuss, is the whole thing about trialling and why all three of us really love a trial. And an example is we were here on Monday um, with Jonathan Buckley, the photographer we work with and who's come with me a lot to visit you to, to photograph your trials. And we were doing a forcing new potato trials, so trying to get them early in the greenhouse in containers. And it was just such a kind of life force somehow judging what had happened. And there were uh, 10 different forcing potato varieties from the sort of classic like foremost and rocket to the sort of waxies like Belle de Fontenay and International Kidney and Kestrel and stuff. Anyway, it was just so great. So we we weighed them all and we had a basket of of with one tuber in it and a basket with two tubers in it. And lots of things emerged, including which was the tastiest, which I'm going to write up for the Telegraph in the future. But the thing that was incredibly exciting 
and sort of revelation for me as a bit of a nerd on trials was that one tuber gives you a bigger harvest than two tubers. Did you know that, Tom? No, less is more. <laughs> less is more. Isn't that amazing? So that's just sort of cheaper and somehow more satisfying that, you know, that by overcrowding two tubers in one basket, you actually get less. Isn't that, I, I, I found that really exciting to find it. Anyway, back, back to you and trials. Since your Portsmouth field days, you then moved with your trials to Param and have now moved with them to West Dean. So I first visited you with a tulips for picking trial and then a sweet pea trial, and then a gladiolus trial, and then a annual climber trial. And we did alliums too, didn't and we? we? Did, and we did alliums, yeah. And- yeah, yeah. But I suppose the one I wanted to talk about particularly today was gladioli, because it's still just about time, you know, not too late to plant a gladiolus, but also there are some in flower right now. So I thought they were quite good for this time of year. So just tell me why you decided on the GLAD for that trial in, was it 2017? Yeah, I think yeah, I think it was. We had to produce a lot of cut flowers for the house at Parham. And you sort of have to scratch your brains to sort of get as diverse group of cut flowers as you can that are going to give you a long period of interest, particularly those shoulder months, you know, early summer, late autumn. And I was looking through the bulb catalogues and saw loads and loads of these gladioli. And I thought, well, where do you start to pick your three or four or for your cutting patch? I thought, well, the only way to do it, and I'm blessed with the space to do it, let's grow loads of them together and work out which ones we like like the best, which ones perform well, uh, which ones go with the interiors of the house. And as I say, being in a very fortunate position where I could could play with that sort of thing. Mm. And you know, with, with photographs, it's all about uh, that impact or, or sometimes enhancing a colour to make it um, particularly special, that image. And sometimes I was a bit frustrated with what I was seeing on an image and what I was actually seeing in the flesh. So it also gave me an opportunity to actually see things growing and make those assessments uh, myself. And you talk about your potatoes. And I think what's really exciting about trialling is you can really drill down and focus on the cultivation of a particular plant to get the best results from it. And as gardeners, we come out of the whole process being a little bit wiser. So if you can trial lots of these different things and you've got the tools in your toolbox to be able to get a really good performance from them, I think is an educational thing for me and the team. I really enjoy that too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So just talk us through how you planted them and how you would recommend best growing gladiolus and then maybe we could each in turn name our three favorite glads sure i mean we found that they didn't need much space because particularly if you're using them as they're they're quite cheap to buy so you know you look at how much a bunch of flowers cost you from a florist a nice bag of gladioli is is quite a, a good buy really so if you're using them as an annual they don't need space to expand year on year so you can actually almost put them touching in the ground so we used to dig a hole with a spade and go down a spade blade's depth and a spade spade blade's width and then put sort of five or seven bulbs at the bottom of that hole Mm. and they would come up as a as a clump but for the trial we dug trenches and we planted a hundred of each next to each other i would say they don't need they need cultivated ground but i don't think they particularly need fertile ground because otherwise you just get loads of leaf and they get really big and need staking so just reasonable garden soil 
and I'd be tempted to plant them slightly deeper rather than shallower. If, I don't know if you guys agree, but yeah, I, think I would agree. There's a lot more consistent temperature, moisture content, and you get a much better better result. And also with things like tulips, a better perenniality if they're yeah. a bit mm. lower down. And they don't need staking so much then, do they? Because they're more anchored. Yeah, and they can if they're close together, they support each other to an extent as well. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, flowering sort of about 100 plus days after planting. So you could successional plant them as well. We didn't with the trial just because of timing and, and, and a lack of lots of other things to be doing. But yeah, we um, found that they all flowered really well. So it's not like you're planting them and you're just hoping they're going to flower. They consistently did well mm. across all the different cultivars. So mm. they, they don't let you down. Mm. They're like summer tulips, aren't they? In that yeah, way. And, and we all sort of, you know, have people over in the good old days for barbecues and parties in the summer and you look around your garden and you think, oh, wish it was more colorful yeah. it was more colorful than this a month ago so if you've got that big knees up that you're planning you know you can time it with gladioli to spice up your garden for that particular evening and the way i use them in the borders here are in clumps to give that repetition and sort of almost naturalized look yeah, yeah. so rather than plant one clump of gladioli in your garden if you can stretch to buying i don't know say 50 bulbs and having 10 clumps of five around your mm. your plot as you go in you get this whole cohesive immersive look to the whole thing and it's almost got a slightly naturalized feel to it and in terms of i think the miniature ones are quite good yeah. for that more natural looking finish and um so yeah so i, I think they've got a, a great a great sort of they're not used as much as they should be and i certainly use them in the borders as, as you say sarah as like a summer tulip yeah. So I have a peppering of gladi miniature gladioli through the borders that I know is going to give me that firework-like impact in August. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, in terms of cut flower, have you got any particular tips to harvesting and then conditioning or are they pretty straightforward? Pretty straightforward. I like to see a bit of colour at the bottom of the spike. And then we found that if you take the very top two buds out, just tip them, you tend to get a much better success rate in terms of the rest of the spike flowering if you leave the tip on sometimes the very top of the spike doesn't quite open yeah that's good that's a good tip and because you're treating them as an annual you're not worrying about removing all the foliage so you're literally cutting them to the ground if you want them to perennialize um, you leave a bit of foliage don't you near the base of the stem that's it so with the the flower ladies that i i've worked with both at work and at home stem length is everything yeah uh, you know they can't put a more stem on they can always cut a bit off so we try and give them as much stem length as possible so in terms of tulips we tend to pull those if you've cultivated the ground and it's nice and soft sometimes you can just pull the whole gladioli up bulb and all which saves then digging the bulb out a bit later on yeah yeah but yeah try and give them as much stem length as possible but if you're looking for perenniality with some of the species ones then just just snip the flower off and then that foliage is a food factory isn't it for for future years and in in borders, would you go for perennializing or would you treat them as annuals still? I'm quite happy with, with annuals. But for yeah. example, what I do with our blue and gold border, I've got one called um, Violetta through there, which is a lovely dark purple. Yes. And rather than rip them out at the end of every year, I'll just add a few more Violetta every year. So, yeah. mm. so like with tulips, it's just sort of topping the display up. Um, and if I get a 30, 40% return on the plant tulips or gladdies that I've put in before, it's a bonus. Yeah. And I hate touching on the depressing, but just to be a realist, what do you do about thrips? Because that's the problem that I've had with glads here, where you get that really annoying, almost it's like a sort of 
a white vein through the flowers, but but can really disfigure the flowers. Have you had that? Not too much. Obviously, sort of monoculture type trialing does tend to act like a massive magnet for those sorts of pests if you grow anything on on mass. But if you've got a, a peppering through the garden, hopefully you haven't got that sort of magnetic attraction by those sorts of um, predators. But in the glass houses here, we'll use biological controls. Yeah. So if people have got a particular problem, could look at biological control for it or something like SB Invigorator as the bud's developing. Yeah, yeah. It'd work, I'm sure, too. And I, I definitely find here we've allowed a lot of ours to perennialise because we actually plant them through the dahlia beds. So you've got the minaret next to the sort of round bosomy dahlia. So, and because we're mulching our dahlias, because we leave them in the ground, we're we're incidentally just mulching the glads and they have perennialised completely. And we find they are better at thrips resistance they don't seem to get that you know the infestation nearly as 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 much so so that's another sort of good way of managing things i think organically anyway yes like us isn't it if our immune system's down we're more susceptible to colds and flus and bits and pieces whereas if um you know your plants are robust and healthy they can nudge off some of these diseases and pests more effectively yeah so arthur would mm. you be able to tell us maybe your why you love a glad and how you use them? Because I know you do at Millyard, and also maybe two or three favourites. Yeah, I mean it's a shame because I think Dame Edna's got a lot to answer for with with the gladioli. Yeah, because they I think people do have a stigma of them still, but I do love some varieties. The dark ones, of course. I mean plum tart. I used to really like. It's a really fiery bubblegum, deep pink, and if I can get that corn early enough, I'll plant it in a decently sized pot with a clump of growing Crocosmia lucifer because I love the orange and the pink together mm, and the different beautiful. shape of the Crocosmia with the, the denser gladioli. But this year I'm growing Bella de Nut. I think that's the, the oh, right yeah. pronunciation. Oh, yeah. I think Belgian it might be. Your yeah. French is even worse than mine. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I like, I like that one. It's very, very dark. It's a bit darker than ex- Espresso which is another yeah. one I really like. The only yeah. thing that annoys me is I like to leave them in the garden to flower rather than pick sometimes. And whenever I do, you do get the wind and the whole flower just snaps, even if I've yeah. staked them with silver birch. So I do find unless I stake them individually for when they're coming into flower in a dolly tub, maybe it's because they're higher than they would be in the ground and there's less perennials around them in a border to just support them. I find if I don't pick them, I get half snapped. Yeah. Sad right. looking glads on a summer di- summer day when I get a storm, but I do love them. And it's very sorry. It's very difficult to sympathetically stake them too. Isn't yeah, it? it really is. You end up kind of like straight jacket them. So yeah, I think I think picking them is is the way to go in pots and in the garden. Really, it just depends on the weather. I'm finding that the violent storms, they're the big beauties. They're just not up to the the summer storms of England now. Mm-hmm. So Tom, over to you. So we've got we've got Belle de Nuit, Beauty of the Night from Arthur and Plum Tart. What about you? Um, as, as I say, Violetta, I think was one of my absolute favourites. That lovely sort of rich velvety purple. Sylvia was another nice. I'm going to sort of really fly, fly the flag for the miniatures because, as yeah. Arthur was saying, there's the staking and the size of those big Grandiflora gladioli are quite quite tricky to sort of manage mm. in a in a garden but the miniature ones uh, because they only get about sort of 80 90 centimeters don't need staking so they're quite quite good and also flow uh, flu- <laughs> i'm going to get tongue-tied now fluva laguna the sort yes. of the 
green and, and the pink green and one, pink, I, yes. I, oh, yeah, is is fab. And likewise, in a in a vase or in a garden, I find those miniature ones are much more uh, in harmony with other garden flowers because sometimes you put a big gladioli in a vase or in a garden and it's very dominant. It's like, mm. look at me. Yeah. Um, and it needs some support acts to go with it, whereas a, a miniature gladioli will work really well with other garden flowers, either in a border or in a vase, um, and it look, look much more at home rather than too dominant. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I quite agree. So I guess I better give mine. So I would definitely choose, first of all, a May flower, a May-June flower. And for that, it would be the garden cultivar of the wild Mediterranean gladiolus, which is Gladiolus byzantinus subspecies communist. <laughs> it's a bit of a mouthful, but it's that magenta one. And currently in the purple border at Sissinghurst, they've got it hugely and it's unbelievably beautiful. And it's an incredibly good naturalizer, totally perennial in the garden here, comes up through grass. And it's, yeah, it's such a good thing for the May color gap, May June color gap. It really, it's, it's a beauty and it's a wonderful. Cut flan. Of course, in the Scilly Isles, it's called Whistling Jack. And it was a whatever you call it, where something comes in that shouldn't but has naturalized. But it's not invasive, but it came in with imported narcissus bulbs, I think. And it's gradually naturalized. And so it's in quite a lot of the hedgerows and along footpaths and things. And it's just very glamorous, deep magenta color and beautiful, absolutely beautiful. So that would be my number one. Number two, the other end of the sort of drama scale in a way would be Acidanthra, which of course is a scented cousin of the gladiolus, the Ethiopian lily it's called, isn't it? And it's got a very gentle, slightly sort of lemony scent. And I find that fantastic for pots because it's got the real classic gladioli, flattened stem and those really spear-like leaves and then at the top it has a hanging pendulous stem rather like Arthur's describing with the crocosmia or a diorama or something it's got that very elegant curve at the top as the flowers open and it's really late so I can use that for an August September even sometimes October wedding by planting it 100 days before just as you say and then we it's not hardy so we do lift them and we store them in an onion bag and hang them in the barn here for planting the following year. But I, I love that coming up, sort of rocketing up through something like Gara, which is equally brilliant for a long summer into the autumn pot, or even one of the smaller cosmoses um, like Sonata Mix. To have that sort of upper story of an acidanthra is, is a wonderful thing. And then finally, I think I would pick one I discovered with you, Tom, in the Param trial, which is a green and you actually were trialing both green woodpecker, which I'd trialed here, but you were also growing it next to evergreen. And the thing with green gladiolus, which is that they're that sort of wonderful chartreuse green, but when they develop and the flowers age, they can turn a rather nasty pea yellow, urine yellow. And it isn't an attractive color in a garden, I don't think. And certainly it isn't as attractive in a gladiolus. Whereas evergreen, you introduced me to, and it keeps green all the way through its cycle, a uh, flowering cycle. So that for me would be uh, my number three, I think, on top of the ones that you've mentioned, which I absolutely love too. Any others that you've suddenly thought of, both of you, that you can't bear not to mention? 
I just would agree with about the acidanthra. And I, I found that as a cut flower, it's got a certain bar's life. It's, what do you say, sort of five, seven days. Yeah. But you can grow them in two litre pots and put a five bulbs, five, seven bulbs in a two litre pot. Or corms, if I suppose I'm being botanically correct. Yes. And you can grow them up to the point where they're budded. And then you can bring them into the house and put them in a little basket or just sit them in a terracotta pot. And then you'll probably get a couple of weeks, maybe two and a half weeks out of, of interest out of them. It always frustrated me growing things like stocks and, mm. and, and those acidanthras that you spend so long growing them and then they last for such a little time in yeah. a vase whereas if you grow them in a pot get them to budding stage and then pop them there used to be quite a nice fireplace or oh, there still is at um, Parham and we just put pots of uh, the acidanthra either side of this quite grand fireplace not everybody's got a fireplace like that but yeah. <laughs> it, they can frame frame certain points in your house and you just get a lot longer out of them so you know they can double up as houseplants too yeah yeah great Oh, well, it was lovely to talk non-Dame Edna Gladiolus. And thank you, Tom, so much for being with us. I hope everyone's learnt lots. I have, and it's reminded me of lovely plants and lovely flowers. The next episode of our podcast is going to be all about colour. And it's about how Arthur and I work with different palettes. So we both adore colour, but how do you stop it becoming like licorice all sorts? That's what we'll be chatting about. You can find more information, photos and advice sheets on all the plants and recipes that we talk about in this podcast by heading to the links in the show notes or on our website at sarahaven.com.